welcome to episode 151 of The Winning Agenda. My name is Jesse Marshall, and here with me tonight is 2015 regional champion, 2016 regional champion, and national champion, and world's top 16 competitor, 2017 world champion, 2018 nationals runner-up, Jess Horrig, uh, who is also known as Chaos Juggler, of course, on Steampack. Um, or Steam Slack, I should say. Uh, Jess, how are you? I'm doing well. Uh, long-time listeners may recognize the format of our intro, but I'll have you know that it took. M- we've done more preparation for it than the rest of the episode. <laughs> so, you know, just going through each individual year, you know, it was a little trip down memory lane, really, which I think if you're listening to this podcast in 2019, you must be a big fan of. Super happy about. Yes, because this is our one and only episode for 2019. <laughs> hey, 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 as of yes, we may do more. That's true. We still have just over a month. Um, so yes, that that's the the intro out of the way. I of course didn't um, <laughs> bore you all with my list my list of um, glorious achievements. Although uh, spoilers, we have got a few other things to discuss that may class as achievements, and you might even think are more significant than the things that I might have said in uh, in terms of my uh, playing. Yep. Um, first, maybe I'll start by saying that I am the terror of Australian snake drafts. Every time there's a snake draft, you'll see me in it. And if you don't know what snake draft is, you can join the snake draft ANZ group on Stim Slack, and we'll be happy to teach you. Um, and oh, I was going to say, for those who don't know what a snake draft is, maybe we'll tell them, but no, nah, we just won't. So you, you've got to join the group. It's so exciting. I'm sure that you, all those of you who don't know what a snake draft is just can't wait to find out. So yeah, snake draft ANZ. How about you, Jesse? What other things have you been up to? I notice you've been on a bit of a netrunner hiatus, sort of clear the mind, um, mind, body, and soul, and you know, look at some other ventures. So is there anything that you want to tell the listeners about? Well, uh, in terms of gaming, um, I've been playing a little bit of Destiny 2. I've been enjoying the new expansion. It's quite good. And while I was uh, playing along with a few other people the other day, uh, someone said, I recognize your voice. Uh, do you do <laughs> Destiny streaming? And I said... Uh, well, no, I don't, but, you know, I used to do this podcast for a completely different card game that you've probably never played. Um, and the person was like, oh, you know, what's it called? And then they subscribed to our YouTube channel, so that was really nice. <laughs> yeah, that's great. A-, a YouTube channel which is getting a bit more love now. Yeah, so I um, have also, for those of you who do subscribe to us on YouTube, you might have noticed, or follow us on Facebook, you might have noticed that I did a few Twilight Struggle videos recently. Um, and while those may seem a little bit out of the blue for a Netrunner podcast, um, there is a little bit of a tie-in as well that's going to become a bit stronger uh, in the next little while because there's a uh, Stim Slack Twilight Struggle tournament that's about to begin, uh, and I'll shortly be hopefully streaming my first game against the one and only Spags. Uh, it may have already passed by the time this gets uploaded. Uh, yeah, maybe. Look, I mean, who knows? But uh, I'll, I'll certainly be recording um, that game unless we play it asynchronously. But the intention is to record it. Um, and then I'll be uploading that, which is all good fun. Uh, we've also got other players, including uh, Blum and Jadeng, playing in that. Uh, and I was actually really happy to see that uh, Zach Cavus is also in the tournament because... Those of you who have been following the winning agenda for a very long time will remember that the first time I went to Worlds in 2014, uh, I lost to Zach in the top eight. And that video is sitting there on YouTube of me getting humiliated. So I'm really hoping that I get to play Zach and then hopefully uh, get my revenge on the Twilight Struggle board. Oh, yep. Um, 
you know, if you can't beat them in one arena, you, I guess, move to a totally different arena. Exactly. Why not? Uh, but, you know, I might just get humiliated again, so who knows? You'll have to listen and watch to find out. Yeah, it'll be hopefully up on our YouTube channel before too long. Um, so that's enough of the non-Netrunner tie-ins for now, although we do have a very special treat for you at the end of the episode uh, in terms of non-Netrunner content. But for now, we're actually going to somewhat surprisingly turn to Netrunner. Jess, what, what, do you want to introduce to our listeners a little bit more about what this episode's about? I mean, they've probably gathered a little bit from the title and the, uh, <laughs> the text that we've used to describe the episode, but we've got some spoilers tonight. Yeah, thankfully, um, we were privileged enough to get two spoilers from the upcoming Uprising expansion. So this is an expansion that has been teased a little bit in the sense that there was a booster pack of cards injected from it into the world's metagame, world's 2019, and, you know, those were some of the more impactful cards for for competitive play, but as you'll hear about later, those were definitely not the only playable cards that you'll find in the Uprising expansion. So we have two runner cards, and, you know, um, thankfully I talked to Morgan and I was able to convince them to, you know, give us two cards sort of similar in some respects, different in others, supporting, you know, some different strategies for what you can do on the runner side while still being powerful enough that we would expect them to see play in a wide range of strategies and not just be shoehorned into one archetype or identity. And so Jess, before we get on to announcing our specific spoiler cards that we have for tonight, uh, you mentioned Worlds, and of course our podcast has been on such a long hiatus that not only do we need to talk through your trip to Worlds this year, but in fact we're going to begin by talking about your trip to Minnesota for Worlds 2018. So tell us a bit about that. How did that go? Yeah, so that was fun. Um, the meta game, I can't really remember what the meta game was like. I think I played a max deck with Patchwork. This is the content that people come for. <laughs> yeah, and then a Mati deck. Um, the Mati deck, I think, had you know all the regular cards. I can't really remember too much, but I made top. How were you trying to trick people with your Mati deck? Um, I don't think there were many <laughs> tricks. I think it was more just using the Mati identity, which um, people now recognize as pretty broken. Once we all learnt you know what it did and how to play it and especially now that employee strike is out of the format it's just really hard to threaten it on any perceptible level and even in 2018 the one card you were mostly scared of was employee strike so i think uh, nisei did definitely a good job there in terms of managing the ban list and the that although that Nisei did a good job in managing the ban list, although I didn't think that uh, format was too bad. I think there were a, a wide range of decks on both the runner and corpse side, although we really are stretching my memory uh, going back exactly what what <laughs> things were like uh, you know, a good uh, 12 months ago. So from Worlds 2018, the last one in Minnesota, did you feel like Netrunner got a good send-off? Yeah, that's right. Of course, it was a magnum opus event, which was... A lot of fun, a bit bittersweet, um, in the sense that, you know, it was the end of FFG's official involvement in the game, and at that point we didn't really know a ton about what was going to happen next. I mean, Nisei had been creating some plans and sort of crafting their organization in the background, but really in terms of 
how Netrunner would continue from there, we were mostly in the dark. Yeah, and so from that point, Nisei has done a lot of work uh, keeping the game going, keeping it alive with not only expansion releases, but really wonderful organized play support, I must say, for all levels of um, competitive play. Um, as well as releasing new cards. How were you feeling going into Worlds 2019 about the state of the competitive metagame and just the health of the game generally? For sure. So I think that in terms of the health of the game, no one could deny that Nisei has done a tremendous job, not only in terms of you know card design and game design, and in some ways that's the easiest part since, you know, we seem to have a lot of opinions on cards. Lots of people have opinions on cards, right? That's, you know, you can get a ton of people um, to spend time doing something fun like that. And I mean, playtesting, you know, does require some organization, but I think largely in terms of creating a distribution network to get, um, you know, game night kits and sets distributed to the players, um, just the professionalism in which they've run events and created their organization and the structure that the competitive scene follows, I think is their biggest achievement, even more than creating a set that, you know, has led to a fun metagame and would be have been very hard and very difficult to play test. Mm. And so you've talked about the set that Nisei has already released. Uh, what was it about that metagame that you found particularly enjoyable and perhaps what are some notable, notable cards or some notable strategies that that set enabled? Yeah, so we're talking about the downfall especially, um, as well as the uprising booster pack to a lesser extent specifically for Worlds. Mm. But I think, you know, there was... I played in a store champs, a regionals, and a number of game night kits in the downfall only format, and I think it did a good job of enabling new strategies. Um, cards like Rezeki and Kushyuk um, on the runner side, as well as probably SDS drone deployment and daily quest, especially on the corp side. I think those are probably my four favorite cards from the set in terms of enabling. A wide range of strategies. They're all pretty flexible, but they really want you to build your deck in a certain way. And especially, I think, for SDS drone deployment, it's really hard, and we've talked about this a lot, to make a 5-3 that can, you know, sort of knock a GFI off its throne. And I think having a proactive effect on score is a really good way to do that. Yeah. And SDS drone deployment, and uh, I'm struggling to remember off the top of my head, but I think there's a couple of other agendas where you kind of get rewarded for scoring them in uncommon patterns as well. I mean, I know that um, in the last couple of cycles, FFG tried to do that as well with, what's the Wayland agenda with the asteroid? Uh, meteor mining? Yeah. yeah. I think, you know, there's a, there's a few that have tried to, and I mean, of course, going back to the start of the game, you know, there were some where uh, Post of Bounty is a good example, where if you scored it in sort of a more risky pattern of play then you got some benefit from it but um, SDS drone deployment is a bit more what has a defensive punch as well so it gives you a little bit of reward even if you fail which is kind of nice. Yeah and I think on the uh, and uh, daily quest as well I think um, it's sort of like Adonis campaign used to be in that it really enables uh, decks that want to build a remote early to have the choice to get value out of that remote every turn so it was always really 
impactful and a really skill testing element with the old campaigns Adonis and Eve when when to override them even when they hadn't necessarily paid out in order to install something and when to just leave them going to get a consistent advantage in monetary terms over the course of the game. Mm. So you played quite a few tournaments prior to Worlds in that downfall only metagame and then you went along to Worlds as well which was um, in Europe for the first time and how did you find your trip to Europe and how did you find the metagame? Yeah so it was in Rotterdam uh, in the Netherlands and uh, again shout out to Nisse like the just immense organizational effort it must have taken to basically create and run a something as big as worlds from the ground up must have just been enormous but of course i had an incredible time on my holidays in europe um you know it's very hard not to when you're basically you know drinking wine (laughs) eating cheese and uh going to uh galleries and museums basically every day Mm. um and in terms of the tournament i think the injection of the uprising booster pack was probably the highlight or the aspect that made the most different for, difference for Worlds because it had, you know, a lot of playable cards. I'm certain that with the exception potentially of the Shaper card, every card saw some amount of play at Worlds, which is a pretty big impact for just a, a set of eight cards. Mm. Seven, seven cards? cards? Yeah. yeah. Seven. <laughs> some number of cards. Yeah, uh, that's, that's really cool. And... Um, in terms of your experience of it as a Worlds tournament, how did it compare? Because you'd been to four through four that, FFG tournaments, or was that your fourth? That was my fourth. Yeah, so you'd had three FFG Worlds before. How did this compare in terms of how many players were there in the end, and, and how was the experience? Um, I don't remember exactly. I think from hearing what others said, it was about as big as a pre-Magnum Opus Worlds, mm. um, which is um, great, and... I think there was also a team tournament beforehand, uh, which was really fun because I think I'd played in two team tournaments before. Jesse, you played in one, uh, like King of Service. Oh, uh, two. Two. Okay, yeah, we yeah. played in two together, didn't we? I uh, think. Or I, think or, I don't we know. only played in one together. Oh, yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. I didn't play with you the second time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. But how, how did you play in that team tournament? Uh, yes. Yeah. Um, that was really fun. That this was teams of three, and I played with uh, Patrick Gower and Aki Mitchell um, from the UK. So um, they, uh, Patrick, I won with last year, playing our team last year. So we figured we'd run it back this year, and you know it was great. Just playing team tournaments is great in general, and I think that you know the atmosphere was really good. Everyone um, was really happy to be there. Of course. Um, you know, given that it was just a big Netrunner convention, you know, you would expect that people would be happy to be there. But I think the atmosphere was just amazing to see that everyone had shown up, not exactly knowing what it would be like. And how was the kind of competitive spirit of the event? Was it like played in good spirits in terms of fair play, but also was it, um, did you feel that it was, uh, I guess, as intense as a, as a FFG Worlds? Yeah, definitely. Um, it was... Definitely as intense as an FFG Worlds in the sense that, you know, at Worlds you don't get any free wins uh, um, <laughs> just from, you know, your opponents maybe not knowing the matchup or not knowing the cards. Everyone you play against, um, you know, has made their choices and is well-practiced and, you know, it's really a sweat, which I think is the sort of tournament that I like playing the most. I mean, you know, it's good to win, but it's more fun to know that your opponent 
who you sit down against is going to challenge you in uh, in the competitive sense. Hmm. Well, that sounds great. Um, any other remarks on that before we move on to the spoilers? Or? Um, I think, yeah, I guess just talking a little bit about the metagame, um, it was, I think, fairly balanced in terms of factions. Um, maybe not as much as you know the most but uh that ffg has ever been but definitely better than at least some of the years that i remember was there much of an hb strategy uh i think hb yeah i mean yeah i mean there were a couple good hb strategies um you know for uh the team tournament um i don't exactly remember what it was called maybe uh monarch of servers again uh crown of blazes crown of blazes that was the one um, so for the team tournament, Crown of Blazers, um, it was teams of three. So you got to forego one of the corp factions. And I think, I mean, apart from Wayland, there was, a, you know, some teams did choose to forego one of the other three factions. And there wasn't any consensus on which one was the weakest. Um, and I think, yeah, there were a, a couple good HB decks in addition to the one that won, which you may have seen, which was sort of a, like, uh, Jeeves... Um, fast advance Asa deck. Mm-hmm. Um, there was also a sort of sports metal uh, rush deck that used the uh, Mega Pre Qualifier, the new card from Uprising, um, as well as you know just a, a number of you know more mid rangey uh, decks playing Fairchild Free, which you know is still not very good to run into no matter which runner you are. Mm. And on the runner side, oh, what what decks did you play firstly? Yep. So on the Corp side, I played an Argus, your your favorite identity, I yep. think, um, which was you know quite similar to the list that Alex had used. Um, Alex Bondin, a, a good friend of ours, um, had used to win um, a regionals earlier that year, I believe, um, or some tournament earlier that year, which was sort of using. Um, you know, all of the good Argus cards, Data Raven, Harpy, Muse's Influence, and, you know, Morseless to protect your centrals, creating one remote and trying to drag them through it as much as possible. So, you know, not much had changed there. I think it was just well positioned because, you know, there were a lot of different runners. Uh, Some were a bit slower and some were a bit faster, Um, but there was not a lot of, you know, ice destruction or know resource denial it was more runners were trying to build up their board and you were trying to build up yours which made it really good to try and build a tempo deck yeah have a tempo deck essentially and and did you play any intimidation in that uh no so it was just the agenda suite was three hostile three atlas three gfi and one oaktown okay so you went for the oaktown over the um armed intimidation for that slot yeah i think some people were playing both but i just like that in some matchups you really wanted to score early and hmm. um, Oaktown really helped you do that while still resing a match if you needed to. Hmm. And um, what was the tag punishment in the deck? Was it just high profile target or were you packing anything else as well? Yeah, just high profile target. So now some of, you know, we've seen with the rise of the uh, Laser decks, some people are playing uh, s- high or? Uh, self-growth program actually. Do you uh, know that one? No. <laughs> oh, okay, it's a new card. It returns two cards to the runner's hand. Oh, okay. So you return their paparazzi and then you high-profile target them. Yeah. Um, but that deck wasn't that popular at Worlds, although I did play against it once. Mm. Um, so yeah, just high-profile target. 
Um, really, it was quite generic, you know, the same strategy that we've always been good mm. of just trying to chain outlets as fast as possible against most runners, and if they were sort of a bit um, going a bit faster, then you could try and play a slower, slower game and not give yourself as much bad pub, and then run them through uh, Data Ravens more than once. And what, uh, or which, rather, ice were you playing that could take you into the long game? Um, so the ice suite was three Ravens, three Morseless, um, three Border Control, two Surveyor. I think yeah. that's it. And uh, ha- I mean, Border Control was a card that I you know, found really interesting. I mean, I obviously haven't played as much Netrunner um, since those cards were released or since World 2018, but that card in particular, I think, is something that a lot hasn't been available um, to Wayland before, and it's obviously a unique effect on ice. How did you find that performed for you? Yeah, Border Control is, a, I think, a really good design. Maybe the second best of the... Uh, of the uh, Magnum Opus cards. Uh, do you have any views on uh, which would be the very best? Or I think we'll leave that one as an exercise up to the listener. Oh, okay. Um, but, yeah, definitely in terms of the power level, I think it fits just right in the sense that it's quite easily broken with most good um, barrier and AIs nowadays, mm. but it still has a couple of really good things that you want in ice. It gives you an advantage upon the runner hitting it and then bouncing um it lets you um you know add more end to the run end the runs to your deck that aren't dead later on in the game and of course the paid ability um really lets you do a lot of tricky things that yeah as you said haven't been available to wayland or any faction other than jinteki really in the past cool um and were there any other kind of notable decks or any shout outs that you wanted to kind of talk about from Worlds 2019? Um, maybe I'll just talk about my runner deck a little bit. Oh, yes, of course. <laughs> um, I mean, everyone knows that I love corpse more than runners, so it's no surprise that I was more interested in talking about corpse. Yeah, um, although, you know, you have to play equal games with both, so I suppose we handle it. Well, I guess, yeah. Um, so the runner deck I played was a Freedom Kamalo, which mm-hmm. is not an identity that I really imagined myself taking to world so you know i was a bit surprised by that but it was not that different to just a you know the regular adark that's been good for three or four years but with some of the wizard um sprinkled in in the sense that the best sorts of strategies against those decks have always been to get just try and get on the board early Mm. and that the freedom ability really helps both against assets in the sense that you can trash them for cheaper and against decks that build a remote because you can try and snipe some cards out of centrals when you know they're putting their resources into the remote but of course compared to some of the other um identities like uh val or max you lose a bit of late game power because you have to spend a bit more time drawing and sort of setting up your board state okay um and were there any other decks that you were kind of considering taking instead of Freedom outside faction? I mean, in terms of your play style, it does surprise me a little bit that you went with that Freedom style deck. I mean, although, like you've said, it does have some of those wizard elements that allow you to control the board, which is obviously something that I think you like to do as a runner. Um, but was there anything else that you considered that might have been a little faster or given you a more consistent resource advantage over the game? Yeah, definitely, you know, I only... like. I was happy with the freedom, but it, I only switched to it at you know sort of the last second. I was almost considering just taking a regular Val, but I figured you know if 
the runner plays three assets on turn one, it's really hard for the for Val to come back unless your your draw is very good. Um, and especially, um, of course, all the Anarchs have some weakness to Hydrogen use. That's mm. been the se- the case ever since Hydrogen use came out. But I thought that um, you know sometimes you can trash it from H two, of course. But really, it's more about not having to spend real credits to fight the runner's board. Um, and in terms of Max, I think that you know playing there were a lot of good restricted choices for your Anarch, I think, um, between, um, you know, some people played Paperclip, some people played Film Critic, um, so having to play Levy, and same old thing, I think, was a bit harder this year than it has been in the past. Mm. And in terms of the runner metagame generally, I mean, one of the vibes that I've had just from a, a small amount of testing that I did before Worlds was that Burst Economy seems to probably be weaker than it has been for a while. Do you think that's a reasonable observation in, in terms of runners, it seems to be, like you were saying, a little harder to deal with a corp that tries to go fast in terms of assets and have a deck that can also deal with ice. Yeah, I think it's not like it was before, where you can just play max, play a burst economy card every turn and still keep up, just mm. because I think in terms of the economic engines, you know, criminals were playing even Rizeki, um, Rizeki or Rogue Trading, Citadel Sanctuary Power Tap, um, or pad tap, especially that was another really good drip card that's come out in the last um, year or so. And shapers, of course, still have professional contacts and pawn shop. Mm. And yeah, I think the um, those are definitely the favored economic engines a bit more than just playing twelve burst economy cards and sort of hoping that that would carry you through the game. I think losing a bit of ice destruction from the runner's side, especially for Anarchs, has hurt that a bit. Mm. Cool. Um, well, I think it's probably a good time to move on to our, our spoiler cards now. I think the game is in a really, really interesting place, and these two cards are, I think, reminiscent of some really powerful cards from the past, um, and they're going to certainly make really interesting impacts on the metagame. So the first one is called DreamNet. It's a unique, neutral resource. It's virtual. It costs three credits to install, no influence. The first time each turn you make a successful run, draw one card. If you have at least two link, or your identity is digital, also gain one credit. So it triggers the first time each turn you make a successful run. We like successful run triggers. They're generally uh, good because they reward you for doing something that you want to be doing as the runner. Um, Drawing your cards at the end of runs is nice because... Uh, it helps you set up for the rest of your turn. I mean, it is somewhat a bit, uh, somewhat awkward to get the information a- about what your options are going to be after you've already made what's probably going to be your biggest commitment for the turn. So that's one of the things that's probably a little bit awkward about the card. Um, and the second ability, gaining a credit if you're digital. At the moment, only Apex is digital. Although, Jess, you have a, a an additional piece of information on this. Yeah, so, I mean, I'm not entirely sure how the timing will work out, but we do, but we are at liberty to reveal that another one of the identities in Uprising will be digital, so it'll be the second um, digital runner. And, I mean, in addition to the criteria where you get the credit if you have two link, so that, you know, automatically means if you put a sunny deck or, you know, a 419 or you know, any one-link runner deck that wants to get linked naturally, 
um, it can already be a very powerful reward. So, I mean, a, a credit and a card at the end of a run, I mean, um, uh, what was it? What's the baby card called? Symmetrical Visage. Symmetrical Visage was a good card. I mean, that was a two-to-install resource that essentially had this effect, but you had to spend your click doing it. You didn't get to also make a run. So paying ad- an additional credit com- compared to Symmetrical Visage to get a one-time effect per turn, a once-per-turn effect, um, that doesn't require you to commit a click to it because you can be making a run and it gives you the benefit incidentally, I think is extremely powerful. Yeah, I think <clears throat> this card is really strong. I think, yeah, it reminds me a lot of John Masanori in the sense that it, yeah, as you said, gives you a reward when you do something that you already want to do and as a, a zero influence neutral card that gives you cards and credits if you build your deck right, you know, I see it potentially slotting into a lot of decks or a lot of different strategies. I mean, it seems like although you have to jump through a few hoops, you know, you have to either be Apex or this new identity or get to two link. Once you do, you really, in my mind, are sort of set up for the rest of the game. And in the context of a metagame that we were just discussing where professional contacts and those sort of longer term uh, resource advantage cards are the engines that people are building around. Something like this is excellent. I mean, this works in a professional contacts deck because you're getting a contacts effect on the click when you run in addition to the clicks where you're hitting your contacts. So that's an incredible um, sort of tempo smoothing effect for you to have, for you to be able to still, I mean, the main weakness of those decks is not being able to deal with threats on board. So this gives you just that little bit of extra ability to do that. Um, and comparing it with a card like Rizeki, even, you know, I mean, people have to jump through a significant number of hoops to be able to keep their Rizekis on the board with their rig. And arguably this is easier to get to two link in many ways um, than to get you the extra memory, or it's as easy, you know, I'd say, to get extra link as it is to get extra memory. Um, so if you're a one link runner who was previously playing Rizeki, this is giving you the benefit of one Rizeki. Admittedly, you only can have one of them on the board as opposed to three with Rizeki, but the benefit that you're getting is, I think, arguably more powerful. Yeah, I think, you know, as you said, it's not hard to find situations where, as a runner, you can make one run a turn, and, you know, a lot of decks are already naturally playing Data Starker, naturally playing Paragon, naturally playing even Career Fair, which I think is perfect with this card, and, you know, I think that it definitely has the chance to go in a wide range of different archetypes. <clears throat> I mean, it's exactly the kind of card that I really like playing because I don't like having a runner deck that is too burst economy reliant, but I really do like to be able to compete. Like, I, it always feels awful to me to get into a situation where you have to sit there and dawdle around building up your rig until you can interact with the corp because it just means you're sacrificing so many matchups. And I think having a flexible card like this that you know you can play and immediately be in a better position to interact is just a really great place to be when you're deck building as a runner. Yeah, I think it reminds me of Paragon a bit in that respect, in that sort of a card you can play that can kickstart your economy for the late game while also doing something in the late game. And I mean, you know, Paragon, of course, there are situations where, you know, if the corp is sort of really pressuring you from turn one of course there are situations where you won't be able to make good use of paragon just because taking a three tempo is so detrimental but you know i think in most games 
especially with a deck that's planning to go long, you can try to go long and build your economy to go long. And I think cards like this are essential for that because, you know, combining multiple things that you want to do is sort of the hallmark of a card that's flexible and powerful. So that's DreamNet covered for now. I mean, we might circle back and have a couple more thoughts on it in summary, but we'll introduce our second card for tonight, which is really exciting to see this one. I mean, it's an effect that people will obviously enjoy for nostalgia reasons, and that's, I, I would say, generally another thing that Nisei's done really well. I loved in Downfall the cycle of the original runners that they brought back. Well, I mean, in, in Andromeda's case, not the original, but, um, you know, well-known and well-loved runners from the start of the game who were no longer around. Um, turning those into cards, the resources that you could play rather than your identity was, I think, a really nice touch and set the tone for a lot of the things that Nisei's done with their card pool. So this is, I mean, in a similar vein, um, replacing what is a much-loved runner effect. I mean, not replacing for now because the, the original is still around, but I guess the intention might be that it might not be around for much longer. Um, and this gives it a new lease on life with a slight twist. I mean, I think it's got an upside and a downside. So we'll introduce the card and then we'll uh, talk about that a little bit more. So it's called Simul Chip. It's a one-cost hardware chip. I think you can probably see where this is going. Uh, it says, if no installed programs have been trashed this turn, you must trash one installed program as an additional cost to use this hardware. Trash, install one program from your heap, paying three less, three credits less. So... Two influence. Oh, yes, two influence, I should say. Shaper. <laughs> uh, and, of course, Shaper, I mean, yeah. <laughs> um, so... The, the first things that come to mind about this card are obviously that you need to invest a little more to be able to use it. It's a little more demanding of you than clone chip. But the requirement that it imposes on you actually synergizes with its ability because um, you have to trash the card, which you can then install from your heap. So you can reset a program like David if you want to, rather than having to install over it, which I think is not something not to be sneezed at. You know, that's a situation that a lot of us would get into when you were playing your clone chip deck where you were planning on returning recurring programs. Sometimes you just didn't have something to play and even having to spend one extra click digging for a program um, to, to overwrite your David or something else can really set you back. Um, so the fact that this has that inbuilt effect, given that if you're playing it, you're probably going to have programs in your deck that you want to be bringing back from the heap um, naturally, uh, having that ability inbuilt into the clone chip to trash things from your rig, I think is really great. Um, or simul chip in this case. Um, the discount as well that you get, three credits is really significant. Um, like th that's the cost of most programs other than the best icebreakers. Um, most utility programs cost less than three. Um, most programs that have um, some kind of expiry in terms of power counters, virus counters or whatever else, um, and then they're exhausted, cost less than three or three or less. Uh, so this is basically giving you that card for free. So whilst it may seem a little more complex or convoluted or not as flexible as Clone Chip, I think the inbuilt synergies with the types of cards that you want to be playing with a Clone Chip effect uh, mean that this card may even be more powerful than Clone Chip. Yeah, I think they're definitely comparable, and we can't say definitively that you know it's going to fall on one side. I think it really depends on the context in which you're going to play it. I think that... Of course, you know, it's good with David. That's probably the elephant in the room in terms of synergizing perfectly, but I think in a lot of other situations, 
you can really take advantage of making something cost three less. I mean, of course, it's not as good as self-modifying code, and mm. <coughs> you know, it doesn't have the same advantage that clone chip has in that clone chip sort of lets you keep a sixth card in hand if you play it earlier. It gives you more resources. This is a bit more resistant to being played when you don't have much else to play. It's a little less explosive. Um, yeah. Than clone chip, because, I mean, with a clone chip and a self-modifying code, you know, you can get two programs out early, whereas with this and a self-modifying code, you can't. So, you know, in that sense, I think it probably rewards um, synergy and value a little more than just explosiveness. Yeah, definitely. It, it's not as good as setting up your rig, but I think, you know, the benefits listed before paying three less is, of course, huge. And I think, yeah, it might even be better in a lot of situations. I think especially in concert with Haley as an identity, <coughs> getting to play two simul chips at, in the same click can re really enable some sort of, you know, play two simul chips, um, stim hack a server, maybe override something with one of the simul chips, and suddenly you can get in anywhere. So it sort of really rewards a bit more the, you know, uh, sort of looping or... Um, disposable cards that I think clone chip is best suited with anyway. I mean, yeah, it's not as good as a at a value. It's but, yeah. yeah, I mean, something like a, a lady, like this just, both David and lady are extremely efficient icebreakers um, and, and having something like this available, just putting aside David, if you were playing a shaper deck and wanting to save on influence on your barrier breaker sl slot to do something else, you know, being able to recur a lady two or three times in the game and getting that three credit discount is just really massive, even com compared to clone chipping it. Yeah, definitely. Um, yeah, I think this is a card that'll definitely see a lot of play. Um, maybe a bit less play out of faction than clone chip, but I think you know I could definitely see ways that you could play it with maybe I don't know the s using some geist disposable breakers in addition to turtles. Um, or, you know, using it with uh, conspiracy breakers that maybe you want to override at some point anyway to bring back, you know, data suckers, tur turtles, imps, stuff like that. Um, uh, and even in a pinch, getting back a cash or a cache, uh, as I would say, but a cache, as most of you would say, uh, is not too bad. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, in a deck with cache, then, you know, cache sort of fulfills both parts, and of course, the. Um, Pawn shop type decks want to play a lot of programs like that anyway, so yeah, it sort of works in both respects. Yeah, and I mean, pawn shop's probably a good analogy in that this is letting you pawn something in and of itself in order to pay for your next program without having to wait for the next, the rest, the start of your turn rather. So yeah, pretty cool. Um, so I really like it as a design. Uh, I think both of these cards are really interesting, and I think will have a big impact on the metagame. What do you think, Jess? Yeah, and I, I think so as well. Definitely, um, I, I see them, I mean, slotting into lots of decks and, you know, let us know on Facebook or on Twitter or, you know, on Slack what you think the best use of these cards is or even just an off-the-wall use, you know. Cool. Um, so thank you for tuning in after all this time, those of you who are somehow still here. Uh, interested in us releasing new content and tonight we have uh, a special treat for you to end the episode um, and that is that we're going to be engaging in what may be the first um, 
unboxing on a an audio only podcast. Um, unboxings, of course, generally are really visual um, events because you know most of the joy is in actually seeing what you're unboxing. Uh, but in in a throwback to our tradition of doing. Um, let's say slightly unorthodox unboxings on the winning agenda. Um, we're going to be unboxing two Throne of Eldraine booster packs from the game Magic the Gathering, which you may have heard of. Um, dude, I haven't heard of it. Can you just explain what it is briefly? Certainly. It's a, a collectible card game. Uh, it's a deck master game, uh, and it's designed by uh, Richard Garfield, PhD. Oh, okay. I know Richard Garfield. That's the guy who made Netrunner as well, right? That's right. Yeah. Um, so this was another of his games, uh, less successful, but um, still quite enjoyable to play. And tonight we're going to be opening, as I said, uh, two booster packets, uh, which are 15 card packs uh, that include um, a, a range of different rarities. Uh, so shall we open together, um, Jess? Maybe, or? maybe one at a time. One at a time? Okay, well, I'll open my packet. And we can see here, this is a, a set, in all seriousness, for those of you who do play Magic. It's, it's quite an interesting set, uh, Throne of Eldraine. It's got uh, a couple of interesting uh, mechanics, including adventure cards, which, as you know, here at the Winnie Agenda, we're value hounds. You know, we like things that are efficient. Uh, we like things that give you uh, good value for, for your cards. And particularly in a game like Magic, where you don't have access to drawing at will like you do in Netrunner. Um, getting two effects out of one card is really sweet. Um, and the adventure cards give you uh, an inbuilt sorcery, instant or sorcery effect. Uh, and if you play the instant or sorcery first, then you can subsequently cast it as a creature. Um, but if you play the creature first, then you forego the instant or sorcery. I will chime in to say that the art in this set is also just exceptionally pretty. Mm. Um, so interestingly, in this pack, um, and I guess we'll talk about it, because commons are not generally particularly useful uh, in constructed, or with some exceptions. I think I certainly enjoy playing limited magic more generally, and I have drafted with this set a little bit, and I have thoroughly enjoyed Merfolk Secret Keepering the absolute SHIT out of people. Uh, it's one of the adventure cards, and it's got a sorcery that costs one blue, um, and its target player puts the top four cards of their library into their graveyard, um, and then you can cast it as a 0-4 as well for one blue. So you can play a mill deck where you get what is a really efficient mill spell, like one blue mana to mill four cards is excellent, um, and then you also get a blocker, which has four toughness. So I think that card's really sweet. Um, so there's one of those in the pack. Uh, there's a foil fortifying provisions, which is probably one of the worst commons in the set. Uh, it's a three cost white enchantment, two and a white creatures you control get plus zero plus one, and when it enters the battlefield you get a food token, which is another of the mechanics in the set that I really enjoy. Um, creating a food token gives you an artifact uh, that you can pay to and sacrifice to gain three life. Um, but there are also a range of cards that interact with food tokens. Um, you know, they either eat them to draw you cards or they eat them to create big creatures or whatever else. Mm -hmm. So it's sort of a mechanic where you can do something with it by itself in the worst case scenario, but you know, if you have other cards that synergize, then you get sort of more than the sum of the parts. Yeah, which I really like in general in Magic sets. I like things that reward you for thinking in your deck building. As I said, I enjoy draft um, formats, so uh, things that reward you for the way that you construct your draft deck uh, as you go along, I think are really cool. Yeah. So 
So what's the uh, the rare? So Magic is a rarity-based game, so... Of course. Um, so perhaps before we get to that, I might just say one more thing about the adventure cards. They have a, a really pretty alternate frame uh, option, which uh, comes in some booster packs. You'll get a, uh, an adventure card that has its ordinary frame replaced with a, a very pretty alternate frame. Um, and in this pack, I was luff- lucky enough to get a Hypnotic Sprite, um, which is... A three-cost instant uh, that can counter-target spell with converted mana cost three or less, which is not a great effect in and of itself. Like, having those sort of cards in your deck is fine. It doesn't specify a creature or non-creature, so it's a reasonably flexible counter-spell early in the game. Um, And then it's a two-cost, two-one flying fairy. So, you know, all in all, it's, I think, a very good limited card. Probably not good enough um, to be played in standard, but, you know, it's certainly borderline. Uh, And the rare is a really ugly looking i mean anytime i see a converted mana cost six blue black card i just think this is god awful like <laughs> there it has got to be very very good for me to ever consider playing it um especially if it's a creature because generally blue black cards that aren't creatures have a much higher chance of being playable than if they are a creature but anyway this is a, a six cost seven seven flash so that's a pretty good start um one blue sacrifice an island it can't be blocked this turn one black, sacrifice a swamp, you gain a life and draw a card. Uh, one blue and one black, exile five target cards from an opponent's graveyard. Return Lock Me a Serpent from your graveyard to your hand. Activate this ability only t- any only any time you could cast a sorcery. So, I mean, Eternal Dragon costs, what, like five to return from your bin? This costs two. I mean, that's pretty incredible. And it also exiles some stuff from your opponent's bin. Um, when it's in play, it's a 7-7 seven, seven for six. It's got flash. It doesn't have flying like Eternal Dragon, but... It draws you cards by getting rid of your excess land and can be unblockable. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think it's pretty sweet. Yeah, it's, uh, although looking at it, it sort of seems like they've just tried to put as many abilities on it as possible. Yeah, and as always, you know, six mana just to get a creature on the board that doesn't have an impact when it comes into play is always a really tough ask. Even though this does have so many potentials for, to give you value over the course of the game, it's going to be a pretty tough ask for me to consider cramming this into a deck. But then again, you know, if it has flash, you can potentially ambush something when the opponent does come into play. That's true. And, um, you know, in permission decks or something like that, it's not necessarily the worst finisher. So that's um, one pack. I mean, there are a range of other cards in there which aren't particularly interesting and don't showcase any of the mechanics, but we've, we've covered a few of the mechanics there. Um, I guess enchantments are probably another mechanic in this set. Um, there's quite a few of them. Uh, but I don't have any in this pack. Oh, I do. I've got the, the three-cost Charm Sleep, three-cost blue enchantment, one and two blue. Uh, it just taps a creature down, and the creature doesn't untap during its control untap step. There's quite a few things that interact with enchantments, but um, yeah, anyway, that, that's that pack. Jess, do you want to open up your pack? Yeah, I've got to get that sound of the booster opening. Really milking that there. First, I have a dwarf. A dwarf token. A, a dwarf token, yes. yeah. Um, Which seem- gets created by the common land, I think. Yep, maybe. Yep. <laughs> um, it seems like the tokens are in the front of the pack now, which is cool. Yeah. Um, this dwarf is very pretty. Um, there's also... Uh, yeah, maybe I'll do the same thing. I'll go through the commons first. Um, as again, I have some of the adventures, which are cool. I also noticed they have some knight cards, so mm. one thing I do like about Throne of Eldraine is the sort of, you know, high fantasy, traditional Arthurian um, 
you know, knights, dragons, and everything. And I mean, of course, it's sort of well-trodden in the magic landscape and in fantasy in general, but I do like, you know, now I have sort of an ogre that's become a knight, um, you know, a sort of dummy scarecrow knight, so, you know, I think they're doing a bit of some different things with the, you know, traditional fantasy tropes, as well as, you know, have a card that just says bake into a pie, which is pretty cool. And is a black removal spell, which is a pretty good one, too. Yeah, but I mean, um, definitely in terms of the art and sort of how the mechanics tie into the theme of the set, I think, you know, they've done a good job in making it sort of feel a bit different to regular magic or sort of the traditional... Um, or where they were heading, perhaps, yeah. Yeah, yeah, potentially, um, while still, you know, keeping a lot of the same elements. Um, so, yeah, I think they've done a good job in terms of that. Uh, I think this card's pretty sweet. Oh, this card is Order of Midnight. So, on the adventure side, it returns a creature from your graveyard to your hand, so sort of like another potential for a two-for-one, some card advantage. And then on the front side, it's a 2-2 two -two flyer for two that can't block. So, you know, you can't trade off with it, but if you just want to sort of gather value over the course of the game, you can do that. I think it's also a bit interesting because, you know, you want to play the creature as soon as possible, but then again, you also want to try and get some value out of the adventure as well. So, And in a constructed deck, playing multiple of them is obviously cool because you can, you know, cast the first couple, and when they run into trouble and perhaps end up in your bin, you can either get them back or get other things back, yeah. Yeah, I also have a horse card here. Uh, how do you feel about horses? Wonderman. Yeah, I mean, I do like the idea of, like, just playing animals and then attacking your opponent with them. Mm. I think it's, especially in this sort of theme, this um, sort of fairy tale world, I think it's a pretty cool thing to do. Um, so this is a horse that, you know, when you play a creature that has an adventure, it gets a plus one, plus one counter, so sort of a bit um, tribal in the sense that you want it and a lot of other cards that sort of do a similar thing. Um... And how about the rare? But then the rare, it's actually a mythic rare, which is sort of a new thing. Mm. Um, I think from Shards Valara. Like 10 years old now. Yeah, yeah. From Shards Valara onwards, you can get mythic rares in the packs instead of just rares. But it's a legendary artifact equipment. It's called Ember Cleave. Um, it's a, so it's a red artifact. So that's, I think, a new thing that they're doing. Mm. Um, so it costs <laughs> six, uh, four, and two red. Uh, it's a legendary artifact. It's got flash. It costs one less to cast for each attacking creature you control. When it enters the battlefield, it gets attached to something for free at instant speed, because uh, it's got flash. And equipped creature gets plus one, plus one, and has double strike and trample. Yeah, so I think um, maybe they're trying to do something a bit like an aura, where you know you can play it and immediately it goes onto something, but then also give it a bit more staying power because it doesn't necessarily go away when the creature goes, which is always the drawback of auras, which is that no matter how powerful it makes the creature, it always makes you vulnerable to losing both the aura and the creature if mm. your creature is destroyed. This card, I really liked it the instant I saw it. I mean, as far as red aggressive cards go, it's got staying power, as you said, so that already lifts it for me above most aggressive red cards. It's got a inbuilt cost reduction by doing something you want to do in these sorts of decks by having a lot of attacking creatures and with anything that gives you free attackers of which there are plenty of things that give you goblin tokens etc um the, the cost of this can rapidly come down to potentially two 
Um, and the fact that it gives double strike and trample, I think, is quite rare. Like, there aren't many things... Uh, they sort of use being blocked as a way of keeping the power of double strike down in general, so requiring you to have two cards or multiple effects to get your double striker um, to the point where it can't easily be blocked by your opponent. Um, so having something that both gives a buff to power and toughness, or three, gives all of a buff to power and toughness, double strike, and trample, I think is extremely powerful. Mm-hmm. For sure. I think, um, is there any sort of strategy that you're looking to put this in immediately? Uh, no, uh, because I don't really play magic. But um, if I did, uh, then yeah, I- I'm sure that I would. Uh, I think from what I've seen, very limited uh, my my very limited knowledge of constructed magic metagame at the moment. This has seen some play uh, in constructed, which I'm not surprised about. Mm. Um, yep. Cool. Well, uh, that brings us to the end of episode 151. We hope you enjoyed our coverage of the new Uprising spoilers, which we were fortunate enough to have the opportunity to announce. So, special thanks to Morgan for hooking us up with those. Uh, we also hope that you've enjoyed hearing a little bit about what we've been up to in, in gaming and otherwise, and we're very grateful to all of you who've taken the time and taken the interest to listen tonight. Uh, we do acknowledge that in true Winning Agenda fashion, the audio quality of this episode is going to be absolutely abysmal, uh, because I left my podcasting uh, microphone uh, at a different house, and despite the fact that I've had approximately 18 months to organise this episode, I still couldn't coordinate things well enough to have my good microphone here. Um, so thank you for persisting, those of you who are still listening to this episode, through what is undoubtedly a somewhat subpar audio experience. Uh, but we do promise that if we record another episode, I will have my good microphone (laughs) jess is making a uh, very supportive face at me um so thank you once again uh i've been jesse marshall uh here with jess horrig for the winning agenda and we hope to see you i was gonna say next week but uh who knows when it'll be um talk about plug plug our various social media ah yes uh you can hit us up on facebook our like page is the winning agenda you can tweet us at Winning Agenda. You can subscribe to us on YouTube so you can see all of those wonderful Twilight Struggle grudge matches, which are going to be coming up very shortly. Uh, and you can uh, hit us up on Slack as well if you want to. Uh, Jess is Chaos Struggler, and I am Jesse Marshall. Thanks for listening. Thanks so much. Till next time. <laughs> <laughs>